My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. Today, my guest is uh, a very good friend of mine. We went to college together. He has done a lot of things since we have graduated from college 20-some years ago. My God. <sighs> my listeners, this is James Stress. Hello. <laughs> What's up, Aaron? I-, I am so glad to have you on this program. I am so glad to do this with you because, as I remember, you were such a lively spirit on stage and somebody that... <laughs> really had some great reactionary talent. (laughs) Wow. Well, uh, thank you. That's a great observation from the outside. I really, you know, those are some years that I, I I remember a lot of hyperactivity, a lot of fun on stage, but man, those went by like lightning. So it's great to be here. I'm glad to see you again, old friend. And wow, the memories just came flooding in. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, you know, like, Weird tie-dyed leotards. I remember a particular nude leotard that I was put in as kind of a um, punishment of sorts. Do you remember my deer outfit from Mrs. Coney's Tale at Christmas? Oh, boy. Yes. The one where the dingleberries showed. And the boy stood up in the matinee and was like, look, Mommy, that's a boy deer. At least... They were (laughs) observant. There was a lot to see in that show. I'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) We engaged the audience in many ways. So since we have graduated so many years ago, what have you been doing and what are you doing now in the theater and performing arts world? (laughs) That's a lot. It's been many years, like you said. So I... After I left college, I ended up in L.A. for a year or two, and I dabbled in a little bit of extra work and TV work and kind of had my, like, Me Too moment (laughs) in L.A. of all things. And, yeah, I kind of, I lived that life. Uh, Moved to Nevada, and I went to college there. I had awesome teachers. I was under the tutelage of uh, the musical theater legend, Mr. Glenn Casal, who's responsible for Kathy Rigby's Peter Pan. So um, he is the reason that my junior year of college, I got my equity card. I was doing Fiddler on the Roof at California Musical Theater with him and was graced with that wonderful, wonderful lottery blessing. Oh, wow. Uh, Nice. Yeah, that was it was really cool. I was one of those those really lucky kids that like I had the choice and it was listen, America. 
you'll get a choice when you get your option to have an equity card and you have to decide like, do I want to do it now? Or do I want to like get a little bit more uh, experience and take my points? And I was hasty. So I was like, I want it now. So that <laughs> happened. I did that. Uh, I moved to New York and spent 10 years doing cruise ships and doing off Broadway and doing workshops. And I spoke at universities and I've had a really, really good time with it. I, uh, I established after God, just with you, I think we did like a 11 or 12 shows and I've mm -hmm. had like maybe 42 or 43 under my belt now and awesome. then I won a, a contest in New York and established my own like professional uh career doing cabaret art and it was funny because oh. I did uh, a, a live cabaret at the Metropolitan Room in New York and they required you to do it in drag but it was 12 weeks of live singing so no lip sync no like gimmicks no ripping off your clothes and getting dollars it was all standing in front of a mic and acting your story and it was it was oh, wow. really difficult. Yeah. And they just <laughs> themed every week. Every week had a theme. So you had to build an outfit to match it. Like you had to make your own song. You had to arrange it and then produce it in sheet music form so that the pianist there that was some sort of like Eric Unruh legend that just right. knew how to play everything could pluck out for you. And so I uh, I I lost that by one vote. And then oh. the, young, the young, I know it was rough. The oh. young man that won it left though, three weeks later. And uh, I got the second place prize. And as a result of him leaving, her leaving, uh, I assumed the responsibilities of that, that, that winning title. And I took the show from them that oh, they wow. gave me as a winning. And I ended up doing my own like live weekly show in New York city for two and a half years. So oh, that's it's been beautiful. awesome. Now, I have followed you on social media. Is is this persona the one that developed out of that contest? That is correct. Oh. The, the, my persona online, Mrs. Diana Carfire. Yes. Oh. I, I love she, that name. I love that name. Thank you very much. I, <laughs> I, needed, I needed a good one. I needed something to like really go there with. <laughs> I told a friend so, about yeah. that the other day and he's like, he's like, what's the name? And I repeated and he went, too soon, man too soon right but yeah that's where she came from i did uh, uh about a year before that contest almost exactly a year before that contest i was asked to do the rocky horror show but they did like a halloween spectacular review so it was this one night only uh on broadway we did it at new world stages so like right on eighth avenue there yep and yep. they asked me to do frankenfurter and it was so cool because i did it with myself i was with marty thomas and marissa rosen and like all kinds of these amazing people that I like had seen on stage and had seen like on Friday oh, wow. nights, like at the, at the camera. Yeah. And suddenly I'm doing the show. And so that's where the idea of that character came from, like wow. being Frankenfurter. Cause I was like, this is so rad. I'm like, I've always had like this weird stipulation of drag just being like this, like fetish. I didn't like ever take the time to actually appreciate that it is ancient in the theater world oh, and yeah. That it, uh, oh yeah and that it is art and so to doing that like open up that world so when I got offered the opportunity to do that cabaret I was like yeah I'll try it why not <laughs> and and now it's such a prolific thing that like yeah. even my kids my I have two sons uh, they're 12 and 9 right now and they watch Drag Race and they, yes. they were following their own queens and they're like oh, 
Mm-hmm. I didn't think that, that she would get that far. And uh, I mean, they, really? it was like talking to them about Star Wars, you know, because yes. uh, like you have <laughs> these characters who are into this kind of thing. And, uh, and uh, when they're given a challenge, they'll bring this to the table. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. I love this. I love this. It's this so just, wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the creativity and the like the rehearsal involved, like some of those people are just the talent is ridiculous. Oh, and it's yeah. definitely and awesome. And I will tell you, like straight on, you've known me for years, like that shit ain't comfortable. Like I am <laughs> done after two and a half hours. People are like, you want to go out? And I'm like, oh, no, Karen, I'm going to the bathroom with some wet wipes. I'll be back <laughs> in sweatpants. And we can go get a margarita, but I am not going out in these holes. Are you kidding me? I have to go take this couch off my ass. Like, <laughs> and not only that, tape. <laughs> the mm. tape. I'll just come watch. <laughs> so we can find that on Instagram, Diana Carfire, just as you would expect it. Check it out. So awesome. That's really cool. I, yeah. Well, thank most you of that stuff I think I knew, but that was really cool. That uh, Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So... I have a fun story about theater history for us today. Uh, Ooh, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, James, how much do you know about the Puritans? Woo! I mean, I know a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit about the Puritans. I'm sure okay. you can give me a refresher course and we can talk about a lot. Okay. I went to Catholic school, so I, I was I was versed a little bit in their ways and their Ooh, influence okay. on theater. Yeah. Yeah, well, those guys, you know, the the uh, you know the Catholics and the the Protestants, they uh, they had some things to say about each other. But uh, we'll get into this a little bit. Uh, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to start uh, in the latter half of the 16th century. The okay. Puritans had gained some considerable following in England during the years of the English Protestant Reformation. So, mm-hmm. as you may recall. Around that time, the Protestant Reformation was happening throughout Europe, but the big catalyst for it to occur in England was King Henry VIII being denied an annulment of his marriage. Yes, (laughs) he did. So he could score with a younger, hotter version of his current wife. Oh, and, you know, possibly produce a male heir. Not that he had a type or a fetish. It was just the way it was. Is your name Anne or Catherine? (laughs) <laughs> you're in <laughs> fine fine i like it i like you it have attachment to your neck no <laughs> so despite that though the idea of a protestant church being at the heart of english culture appealed to a lot of people mm-hmm. now the puritans were a group of english protestants who frankly thought that the church of england did go far enough during the english reformation to separate itself from the catholic church which really was yes what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. We're not being Catholic anymore. Well, and I mean, that is probably playing into what you're about to talk about, like mm-hmm. how it roots into theater, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a little mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, you're getting there. Mm-hmm. In fact, <laughs> the Puritans basically wanted to make sure that they were markedly separate from any other faith, including other Protestant faiths. Mm-hmm. Moreover, they were strictly against anything that they determined to be bad behavior. Ergo, this basically included anything that was fun. <laughs> yeah, any type of practice outside of their church practices, yep. basically. Correct. So the Puritans felt that all people should live devout and godly lives, and then anything that distracted from that could be considered sinful. So, of course, they yes. felt the arts particularly theater, suffered from an excess of sinfulness. 
Theater. Well, and that's a big surprise. Like <laughs> you're literally, you're literally reenacting Faustus and stuff. I'm sure they were like, "What?" Yeah, that man Ooh. wants to get close to Satan, and he's just pretending, Close-a. right? Mm. <laughs> and, and like you said, their separation from the Catholic Church—that's that's a given. Oh. Like anyone who's ever been to a mass, it's just one giant hour of theater. Like uh, it, yes, elaborate costumes. rituals that they do things that you're supposed to say at certain times yeah the pomp and circumstance of it the procession like yeah and at the end of it you're supposed to have some emotional release right yes a big catharsis after you eat the bread and sip the wine (laughs) (laughs) this is just yucky bread (laughs) i didn't know there would be snacks and i didn't want them (laughs) i'm allergic to juice (laughs) Now, at this time, theater was widely known for having to employ people of the lowest social classes in order to stage a production. Therefore, drunks and often prostitutes were usually the people that they might put in to be like, you're a soldier, stand over there, or Mm -hmm. you're a lady in waiting. Now, even despite this, the art was still massively popular, but with the frequency Mm -hmm. of, like you were suggesting, rude jokes, characters with ill intents, and just the body count of characters killed in theater of the British Renaissance gave the Puritans plenty of fuel for their opposition to the art. I mean, and let's discuss Shakespeare at that time. Like, oh my that, God. that was, it was all like big busty women and like men who were all kinds of different preferences and glitter and fairies and sex and everything was like, like we remember Tom, Euripides, Eumenides, like it's, it's so true with Shakespeare as well. Like everything was rooted in something sexual or there was some underlying joke underneath the, the text that if you really researched it you would understand like oh yeah him and that giant lexicon he carried around remember that giant slab <laughs> of a book and he was like here's what this line really means mm-hmm. like, <laughs> so yeah i'm sure they would have a heyday they probably went to like midsummer night's dream and were like i think i need an exorcist <laughs> <laughs> they turned that man into an ass oh my god i just said it I said ass. Um, I did a high school production of Romeo and Juliet. I directed it about 10 years ago now. And I took out most of the dirty stuff. They're going to be jokes that are going to be going over people's heads anyway in in a lot of fashions. But, oh, I had to keep it in, man. uh, There was, uh, because in, in the script, Mercutio says something to the nurse to get her so excited and she runs off stage, right? She's like, oh, agitating. Mercutio. <laughs> but there's something he says. He, uh, She asks about what the time is and he says, oh, well, if you look at your watch, I believe it is on the prick of noon. Prick. And I had this high school junior point to his crotch, look her dead in the eye and have her just like have the realization you're talking about your penis and run off. I'm like, why else would she go away? <laughs> right? You're showing her the big old tent pole in your pants. Like, <laughs> it was definitely Shakespearean. So, yeah. Yeah. So, the Puritans began to take over Parliament uh, in the beginning of the, uh, well, like towards the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, and being able to take over in Parliament meant they had some governmental authority to enforce their ideals. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. King Charles I began his reign in March 1625. Charles was quite the student of his father, James I, particularly how he felt about having divine right to the throne. And yes, I'm talking about that King James. Yes. Yeah. King James. The, Bible. Bible. Mm -hmm. the one he officially commissioned, but got the editing authority to make sure he could admit anything that might possibly be construed to challenge his authority as king. The one that we hold as canon right now, perhaps. Oh, maybe. How about that? Yeah. yeah. That guy. James and Charles have been called absolute monarchs as they believe that not only do they have the supreme authority over governance, but that their line, their bloodline, has been specifically appointed by God to rule the country. And what year did you say? 1630 or 45? 1625 is when he started. 1625. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, just the pomp to be like, no, God chose me. <laughs> right. And everything I say is ordained by him. <laughs> And you cannot challenge that because it is God. Hmm. Okay, but you still ran over my dog. Off with your head. <laughs> Precisely. <Justice. laughs> so, Charles was not that much different than his father. And okay. Charles I was not particularly keen on following the orders of parliament. He more or less, did, like, he hated the idea that there's this group of people who could tell him what to do. And they were beneath right. him. They were beneath him. Now, at the same time, the Puritans believed him to be pretty overtly frivolous with tax revenues. And guess what? Not quite holy enough. So sorry. And then, of course, his response is, but I'm sent from God. I was sent here by him, but we don't speak. <laughs> he just believes everything I'm doing is fine. Also keep in mind that the Puritans were known for being overtly pious and again they wanted to purge the church of england uh, they wanted to purge from the church of england as much catholic influence as they could find so it certainly didn't help in the upcoming years that charles i took henrietta maria of france as his wife and she was staunchly roman catholic mm -hmm. that's gonna cause a few bubbles in the pudding i mean how how like I mean, the doors must have blasted open on Parliament with just all of the... Okay, seriously, the guffawing that must have happened, just at the sheer, like, thought of that, like, this woman coming in that is, like, the most dramatic of the religions at the time. <laughs> like, the, the WTF factor must have been at, like, 10. Like, everyone must have just been like... Oh. <laughs> and of course it was all it was all for political gain like you know there was yes. some treaty that was signed or you know a dowry that came into play like well if you marry yes. you get these lands and and that's what it was all about it had nothing to do with catholicism he didn't care now this series of disagreements between the king and parliament it actually led to military conflict oh so the so stuff got real yeah the parliamentarians this, this is great. Uh, it led to uh, two very vocal factions. Those on the side of the king became known as the royalists or cavaliers, and those against the king were called parliamentarians or roundheads. Their nicknames came from their haircuts. <laughs> 
So you can imagine on one side of the battlefield, all these fancy men with long wigs or just amazingly plumed hair. And then on the other side, just these men with short, pious, like, mm, no, anti sex Like the Mordred haircut. haircut. <laughs> <laughs> like the... <laughs> Well, I, I didn't really deep dive too much into exactly what why they did the haircut, but I can only imagine it had to do with... Oh, my God. Well, if I look sexy at all, that's sin. Don't be it. I will look like a short Napoleonic horrible person for life. <laughs> and I will like, still no buy it. I mean, right? ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. Can you imagine? Like, no one looks good with that haircut. They did a good job. Like, can you imagine Brad Pitt with that Earl Flynn? Like, <laughs> like. <laughs> now, the Cavaliers were in favor of this absolute monarchy, while the Roundheads demanded a constitutional monarchy. So, basically, does the king just get to rule the country undisturbed, or can Parliament have a voice in how the government's run? Okay, so like. Actual kind of interesting political debate. It's not like yeah. oh, you're for this church and we're not for this church. It's we actually kind of have this idea about democracy. Yes. Can we do this? And then you and have then this... hours and hours of debate ensued. Right. Well, not even. <laughs> I mean, Charles just went, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm king. Piss off. <laughs> the end. This series of conflicts became known as the English Civil War and was fought from 1642 to 1645 all over the British Isles. Okay, here comes a name you might recognize. Enter okay. Oliver Cromwell. Ringing a bell? Yes. Oh my yes, he God. Does. Oh God, this is one English of my English statesmen. I, I mean, that's, uh, you just have to imagine like a staunch, stuffy British person and you, you, you've got him. He's like, every, every picture I've seen him in, even his death mask is just like frowning. Right? <laughs> All the he, time. I'm, I'm using my Thomisms. Ooh. I'm remembering. He used Parliament against the king, right? Oh, yes. Yes, you are. Yes. This. Okay. See, I know this go. subject. Let's do this. Here we go. Cromwell was born in 1599 to a wealthy family from the town of Huntingdon. He okay. married in 1620, and he and his wife would sire nine children, six of which survived to adulthood. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Yep. Keep them running. I mean. I mean, yeah. you got that statistic. Just keep pumping them. <laughs> how many women, how many women were just okay basically being brood mares? <laughs> Seriously. One more try, honey. <laughs> try in the spring this time, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it on, not under a full moon. Now, his family's wealth and stature allowed Oliver to become a member of Parliament in 1628, right mm -hmm. in the midst of this dispute between the Rump Parliament and Charles I. Yep, that's the name of it. The Rump Parliament. <laughs> All these people who are so obsessed with things that are sinful came to be known for a synonym for the ass. Um, As rumps. <laughs> yep. Basically, it, you know, it, it kind of was like a situation like each parliament has a name. You know, the uh, the one before it was called the long parliament because they'd been there a long time. And so when like another parliament came in, they were kind of like the 
and, and this is seriously why it's called the Rump Parliament. They were like the end of the the people left. In they the, called the, them the Rump. They called them the Rump Parliament. Now. Before the English Civil War, Oliver did not show a lot of military prowess, but he developed his skills in leadership and military strategy throughout the many battles fought in the English Civil War. Yes. Oliver quickly became the leader of the Roundhead Army, known as the New Model Army. Now, while there was no decisive front runner to these military skirmishes, so basically there's these military uh, actions happening all over the British Isles. No one's really winning. Tons of people are dying. Yep. Parliament felt it would be necessary to nip this thing in the bud. So many parliamentarians called for a trial of Charles I because, according to them, he had caused the deaths of thousands of not just parliamentarians, but his subjects by refusing yeah. to allow parliament to have a voice in governance. You did this. We just responded. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That sounds so familiar. Yeah, weird. And if found guilty, Charles could be executed. Cromwell was leading a faction of soldiers in the north of England when he heard the news and immediately went to London to throw his support behind the movement. Cromwell is said to have based his support on the trial from a Bible passage. No oh, kidding, right? Great. Yeah, here we go. It's Ooh, numbers, numbers 35, 33. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. If ever there was a more narcissistic passage to use. Like, wow. I didn't do it. You did it. No, no, no. I, yes, I swung my sword and cut the heads off of many people as well. But they were running at me. You advanced. <laughs> so the trial, obviously, was approved by Parliament. And Charles mm -hmm. was put on the stand. During the trial, Charles would often refuse to respond to any questions. His responses would all center around how he was king by the will of God and that no man-made court could challenge that authority. <laughs> uh, sir, how do you plead to these charges? I, God told me to. Mm, uh, Yes, but you sent factions to Ireland to destroy them, and um, I, I don't see how that would be God's will. But that doesn't matter, because it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, Charles never technically pled anything in his defense. The prosecutors also determined that the king was not actually a person, but rather the king was an office, so there could be no <laughs> sovereign immunity. It's just a person in a job. <laughs> I mean, like, they had those webs woven deep even back then. I mean, they were messing around. <laughs> they were not. They were, I mean, why was this not step one? <laughs> exactly. Put them on like the question throughout all time like why wasn't that the first thing that you tried to work through no let's convince a lot of the people in this country to go fight and die and the one with the bigger body count loses because <laughs> okay cool are you gonna like hide in the forest and like kill each other nonsense we're going to line up in straight lines and shoot so obviously the court found charles guilty as yes. his answers 
were not really a plea for his defense. The alternative, oh, this is great. Oh my God, I love this. This is actually a method that they used in court. The alternative okay. to getting him to make some sort of plea would have been to apply pressing stones. Have you heard of this practice? Yes, actually, I, I looked it up. It's so funny that you say that because it was in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. And, and I looked it up after that episode and learned that it was a real thing. They would literally just stack stones one at a time on top of people's chests until they smashed them. Like, yep. mm -hmm. Or they confessed and then they would kill them slower. Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. Can you imagine? That must have been just the most awful Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, nothing like waterboarding. Nothing. <laughs> no. Best. no. I mean, at least at least they could still breathe. Mostly. Can you imagine they were just like, just let's just leave him out here for dinner. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> just put like one little tiny pebble on the top of it. I'll <laughs> 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 never talk. <laughs> Squish. Now, Charles was sentenced to death by beheading on January 27th, yes. 1649. During the rest and of Cromwell that was one of, he was one of the, he signed the death warrant, didn't he? Oh, he was like the third one. Yeah. yeah. So during the rest of that day and on the following day, signatures were collected for the death warrant. This was eventually mm -hmm. signed by 59 members of the parliament and the court it established. And this included two people who had not been in the courtroom when the sentence was passed. That's crazy. <laughs> Where did those like guys everyone go? Was... You, you went out for lunch. Come here. <laughs> right. I know the soup is fabulous, but I need you to sign this bit of parchment. Uh -huh. Charles was executed three days later on January 40th, 1649. Then is where the real fuckery happens. Oh, this is amazing. Charles had a son. Charles II. Charles II had accompanied his father on many military actions during the English Civil War. His father even made him the commander of the English forces in the West Country when he was only 14. Let's think about that. Hormones <laughs> exploding everywhere. And they're like, do you want to lead everything? Oh, uh, sure. I'm good. I'm having some thoughts about girls. Mm. Kill everyone! Ah! <laughs> But fearing for his safety, Charles II silently disappeared to France to join his mother, who was already living with her cousin, King Louis XIV, the Sun King, the one who commissioned the Palace of Versailles. I mean, talk about a king who made sure he had the best of everything. And Including this a $7,000 bottle of uh, cognac now. Oh, really? What? Have you ever, did you know that the, the Louis XIV cognac, it goes for like $250 an ounce. And you want to know what blew my mind even harder? Our good friend, Miss Michelle from college. Remember Lil Mo, Lil Blue Hair? I went to her house in Vegas and her grandpa, she had like asked for like this pretty crystal jar that she had just been looking at her whole life. Completely sealed with the fleur de lis on it, the little tag still on it, she has a bottle of fucking Louis the Fourteenth Special Reserve. Oh. And I was like, do you know what that is? And she's like, no. And I was like, I think you need a little history lesson. <laughs> um, first, put it down. <laughs> do not open that ever. <laughs> Why? Sounds good. Can you imagine, like, drinking that whole bottle and getting smashed? <laughs> 
anyway. pouring whiskey back in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. This cognac tastes like Jack Daniels. <laughs> now, Charles did try to assist his father from afar in the last years of his father's conflict with the Roundheads. Uh, mm -hmm. Charles II moved to The Hague in Denmark, where he tried to muster a navy to join his father's forces in England. He didn't get that done on time. <laughs> no. It kind of was a uh, calling card of Charles II that he tried really hard and... Procrastinated a lot. Yeah, like, oh, oh. Now, in this instance, this may have been because he had a somewhat thorough but quick affair with a woman named Lucy Walter, who would bear the first of Charles' illegitimate children. And we'll get into that later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, regardless, Charles II's attempts to save his father were pretty unflattering, and he returned to Versailles, where he remained in exile until 1660. Sounds like a good yes. you know, 11 years. And there, <laughs> he would soak up the culture of French nobility, which will also come back later. <laughs> Why not? In the absence of the king, Parliament now had the task of demanding how the country should be ruled. So in 1649, Parliament began to reorganize the country as the Commonwealth of England. This Puritan uh, rule was also known as the Interregnum, which is Latin for between kings. I loved this. <laughs> during, this time, during this time, the Puritans attempted to establish a democracy, which blows my mind. It just blows my mind that they're like, we have the chance we have an opportunity right now to establish. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, as much crap as we as Americans give our current governmental system, I actually had an opportunity to talk with uh, somebody who came up uh, to Sheridan for actors from the London stage. And he went, you know, if you talk about history, America may be one of the greatest ideas civilization has ever had. And here I am in the midst of like all political strife going, oh God, oh. He goes, no, think about it. It's establishing a place yes. where whoever you are, whatever you want to be, you have the freedom to do that just as long as you're also American. Right. Yeah. But on the Meanwhile, other hand. <laughs> we're coming across a holiday tomorrow where we're like, okay, but in order to be able to do all of this, we need to kill all of these people over here. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, <laughs> you know, it, the first Thanksgiving was actually pretty nice. Yeah. They sat down. They went, well, this is great. Let's mingle this cultures. A year later, heads rolled. <laughs> right. Yeah. Fuck your pheasant. <laughs> Marvin has smallpox. Quick, send Marvin over to the camp with some pepper. Hi, I'm Marvin. You people are nice. <laughs> Can I drink from your glass? <laughs> itchy, itchy, itchy. Jerky looks great. <laughs> Now, Cromwell was still the military leader and was able to stave off potential invasions from both Scotland and Ireland. So that's actually kind of impressive. And in 1653, the parliament rebranded the country again to be called the Protectorate. And they appointed... And mm. that's when he was crowned the Lord Protector of England, right? There it is. Yep. Woo! And not only that... <clears throat> a lot of the English civil wars were like, hey, we need to unite all three of the countries here. 
And that was why they brought James I down from Scotland, you know, Charles II's grandfather, to be there so he could rule all of it. In fact, Charles, yeah. <laughs> Charles II was even crowned King of Scotland while he was in exile. But yes. It didn't matter because the parliament was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just, <laughs> you were talking about diplomacy earlier. It's like, um, uh, but we're Scottish. We'd like to have our own country, please. No. But we're <laughs> Irish. We'd like to have our own country, please. No. Bring your taxes okay. here. Thank you. During <laughs> <laughs> his tenure no. as Lord Protector, Cromwell aimed to win over a public that was largely confused by the machinations of the government. On one hand, People of England could recall the times of relative economic and cultural prosperity under James and Charles I. And on the other hand, Parliament didn't even try to win them over by giving them so-called a, a, a so-called democratically appointed leader who they didn't choose. Mm-hmm. Cromwell's many atrocious military attacks on his own people seemed somewhat hypocritical, given the fate of Charles I, and all of which he could justify as God's good work. Yeah. unabashed Cromwell made the aims of his rule quote healing and settling after the many internal military conflicts fought within the last few years and for spiritual and moral reform these types of reform look to eliminate practices considered too sinful for daily consumption which continued the practice of anti-theater yep in fact, before the beheading of Charles I, the Puritans in Parliament were able to ban theater within the city of London, beginning in 1642. Now, it had already been kind of out during Elizabeth's reign. They couldn't practice within like the city confines. So I love looking at this. If you look at an, a map of British Renaissance theaters, they're all just across the river on the Thames, like dotting right over and looking in like, we're having fun right here. It's like if you're in New York and everyone in Jersey can just see 8th Avenue. <laughs> all the Broadway theaters, they're like, yep. ha ha ha, you guys have all the shore people that dye their hair black and work out and wear lots of gel. But here we are. Boop, 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 boop. Yep, exactly. Now, as you recall, Charles was executed in 1649. So when they banned yes. theaters in 1642, he was doing other things, had bigger fish to fry. So theater was just gone. Uh, I love this. Here's here's your laundry list. In addition to banning theater, the following practices were also considered uh, lawfully punishable acts under Cromwell's leadership. Swearing, working on Sunday, bear baiting, most sports. Wedding? Bear baiting. Okay, that sounds like something that's way too Chelsea, New York. What is a bear bait? I oh, bear baiting. Oh, uh, that was one of the alternative entertainments besides theater that you could go to. See, they chain oh. a bear to a wall and let dogs attack it. Oh, what fun. <laughs> but now it's too sinful. Uh, yes. So can't do that. Uh, most no. sports were banned, wearing makeup, and celebrating Christmas. For ladies as well, makeup. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Wow. Nope. Couldn't do any of it. Everyone looked glorious during non-Christmas. <laughs> oh, and, and even, but you're not supposed to celebrate Christmas anyway. No Christmas. <laughs> I mean, can you just imagine that? A family for years is like, they've gathered around, they have the big roast 
thing on the table, be it a duck, be it a turkey, be it a pig, whatever. And they've invited everybody and it's all happiness and joy and frivolity. And then this year, oh, we have a surprise. We're going to sit and think about Jesus. Okay. <laughs> the goose. No, uh, no, 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 no. Jesus had no goose. He didn't. Do we sit and think about him not having a goose while we wait for the lovely suckling pig? Now, if you think about suckling pigs, you do realize God is everywhere. I apologize. Like, even if I write a letter to Santa? No. 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 Absolutely not. No. <laughs> Theater did still continue, though. Many pleas by theater artists to overturn the ban were largely ignored by Parliament. I mean, <laughs> look, we know actors. I can just <laughs> see them all going, please, I want to, I need to perform. And there's all these guys just, mm, no. No. So they went underground. I like to think of them as speakeasies, kind of. One such was the home of playwright William Davenant, who turned a room in his house, called the Rutland House, into a private theater where his works and those of other writers considered seditious could be performed. So you could only come if you got an invitation, and the invitation would mm -hmm. be coded, and you're going over like you're going over to, you know, do a Bible study. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> in fact... A performance of his The Siege at Rhodes at Rutland House in 1656 is considered to be the first performance of an English opera. Happened during this time, underground, can't stop them. <laughs> That's amazing, right? Yeah, They're right? like, we're still doing it. Thank yep. you for coming, yeah. both of you. Did you go see a play today? Mm, no. <laughs> I did not either. And this was basically the rule of the land in England. Cromwell ruled from 1653 to 1658, and even though he was offered a crown, he refused it, stating that the wars were fought to remove the office of the king, and he thought, yep. mission accomplished. Cromwell was stricken with illness in 1658, which many now believe to have been malaria and some infection of the kidneys. I tried to find it. I couldn't. I, I know I read this somewhere, and I couldn't find it, but somebody described his urine as thick and dark as wine whoa like, Ooh. <laughs> maybe keep that to yourself he's not well right. what's wrong pissing wine pissing sauvignon blanc <laughs> rather poor vintage but i think we could pass it off he died at age 59 on september 3rd 1658 and was laid to rest in westminster abbey with the same regalia as the funeral of James I. Cromwell was succeeded by his son Richard, who simply did not carry himself with the same pomp and military fervor as his father. And despite their best efforts, the many democratic experiments of the Puritans largely failed. The country was no better or worse off than when the Puritans came to power, minus the several thousand citizens who died in battle. Well, we tried. It was an excellent effort. Fearing the collapse of his country, one of Cromwell's generals, George Monk, M-O-N-C-K, took up some of his regiments to march on London and replace the current rump parliament with the remaining members of the long parliament and set in motion the actions to restore Charles II to the throne of England. Then all of parliament dissolved and a general election for parliament was held for the first time in almost 20 years. All this while... Charles had been living something of the sweet life in Versailles. 
As Louis was an extraordinary patron of the arts, Charles experienced the finest arts that Paris had to offer and was quite fond of intermingling with other wealthy arts patrons. Mm. Yeah, so if the Palace of Versailles is any indication of the extravagance of the French royal court and uh, what they appreciated, it's not difficult to understand how this would in turn have a profound impact on the cultural perspective of Charles II. Yeah. (laughs) Plus, Charles would definitely have seen the works of Moliere while he was in France. As, and who, as you may recall, wrote some of the most celebrated comedies in all of theater history. Moliere's plays often dealt with the foibles of the upper class and how despite being people of higher social status, their drives were often base and corrupt. Basically understand that this meant that a curtain was being pulled back and exposing the French upper class for what it truly might've been. It wasn't always so successful for Moliere, but it ended up being pretty successful for Charles which I will also get into later. (laughs) (laughs) When not living the life of luxury, Charles tried to drum up support for several campaigns to take back the throne. Nothing worked out. However, with a new parliament in place, they gave him the opportunity to return. The new parliament wanted the return to be peaceful. So they struck a deal with Charles II that once he assumed the throne, only the enemies of the state that he could reasonably punish were those who committed the regicide, the killing of his father. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he did. Charles called for trials and executions of the 59 members of the rump parliament who signed the execution order for his father. And many of them have gone into hiding, but those who could be found were generally hanged, drawn and quartered, and then beheaded. Now, I'm going to give some spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Braveheart, but, uh, you know, how William Wallace died and was tortured at the end. That's pretty much what happened to all of these guys. All of them. And that is the most awful thing can you imagine they hang you until you almost pass out yeah drop you down stretch you out chop off your limbs and then cut off your head and sometimes they need to be nice enough to disembowel you before they cut your head off yeah yeah i mean what better way to prove to a person that they were naughty than let them experience all that pain and psychological trauma you know the beheading's coming so whatever this uh order included oliver cromwell Per the orders from Charles, the bodies were to be exhumed, put on public display as part of a trial, and then executed by beheading. And this is exactly what happened. Three of them had died since since the execution, and so they were ordered to be exhumed. Their bodies were dug up and mummified as best as they could be and all delivered to the town of Tyburn to be kept at an inn until the scheduled day of execution. That must have been quite the smell. (laughs) Oh, wait, there's more on that. However, only two of the corpses, including Cromwell's, made it to Tyburn at the time, as the third had decomposed much more significantly than the other two and required a little bit more, you know, TLC. Finesse. (laughs) Like, we're going to cut this thing's head off? (laughs) On January 30th, 1661, on the 12-year anniversary of the execution of Charles I, Cromwell's corpse was executed by beheading. Quote, at four o'clock when the next ghoulish stage and the ceremony was due to take place, the corpses were taken down. The common hangman proceeded to hack off the heads. In the heavy muffling of the grave clothes round the neck, it took eight blows to get off Cromwell's head. 
Nor was that the only incision now performed on these inanimate, unprotesting objects. It seems that the fingers and toes were hacked off at the same time, and it is at this point that Cromwell's skull may have lost an ear. So they totally just, like, weren't even aiming. <laughs> yeah, what was... <laughs> I mean, they say it was the common hangman, so is that an elected office? Thank you for coming, Frank. Here's a shot or an axe. Have fun. <laughs> what? All right. Wait. I just cut his head off? think I got near. Whoops. <laughs> and you know, as soon as he got it off, he's like, yeah, that's how you do it. Eight. <laughs> like, that is just like, we. it's so funny how people glaze over history like that. And they're just like, yeah, that's what happened. But you don't ever think about it. Like, these were dead people. They were already dead. So they looked like the walking dead. <laughs> and they're doing all these things to them. Like, can you imagine some of the, like, people in the audience were like, this is going to be great. And then by the end of it, they're like, I'm glad I brought my poncho. <laughs> right? Um, so that's what dead blood feels like. The headless bodies were then thrown in common graves where executed bodies often were. But for the heads, a further fate was still reserved. Oh. They were taken down to Westminster Hall and five days later stuck solemnly upon its facade on poles of oak tipped with iron and been driven through the center. Because that's so Christian. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cromwell's head remained atop the facade of the wall from 1661 to 1685 when it said that a large windstorm blew the skulls down. Holy shit. 24 years. Of watching that face fall off. Wow, that is just like, can you imagine being a kid that's born like, like the first time he goes into town is right when that's stuck on the pole. And then like the day he dies, he's like riding the wagon into town. They're like, what's up, Cromwell? Like. Song did I ever tell you about the day I watched three dead bodies be executed? And their heads are still on the wall. <laughs> That'd be like when Saddam Hussein died. They're like, we're just going to put him in Times Square, right where the ball drops. What? Just put him on the pole right below, right? Right where it finishes. Put him right here. <laughs> so every new year we're like what's up Saddam <laughs> <laughs> now rumors are that a local craftsman found Cromwell's skull and hid it in his chimney because it was something of significant historical you know it was a significant historical relic and he bequeathed yeah. it to his daughter on his deathbed the head was sold several times over the next several centuries it was given a secret and an appropriate burial on the grounds of Sydney Sussex College which is part of Cambridge in 1960, by a man named Horace Wilkinson, the son of the historian Horace Wilkinson. The burial was not formally announced until October 1962. That's full on like to be or not to be shit right there. Like, <laughs> I mean, did that head when they're like, all right, we dug the hole, drop it in the hole. And it, it had to just explode to dust at that point. Right. <laughs> so. Back to Charles II and how all of yes. this relates to theater. As I was saying before, Charles was exiled in France to escape the fear of the Puritans, but it's not as bad as, bad as it sounds. He really enjoyed being part of the elite with its penchant for debauchery, while in the guise of extraordinary dressing and impeccable design. King Louis mm -hmm. of France, uh, you know, he was known for his patronage of the arts. He loved the ballet. And yep. under his reign, the arts flourished, as did fashion, interior design, and architecture. It was so gorgeous. All this stuff that came out of his era, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah, Just yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, obnoxiously beautiful. 
Right. <laughs> like, I mean, don't touch it. So, during the Commonwealth, the Puritans had stripped all the nobles of their titles and rights. And after the punishment of his father's persecutors, one of the first actions Charles II took was to restore these rights back to the nobles or their next suitable heirs. So, of course, on the surface, this was done to assuage the public. We're getting back to normal. We're, we're reinstating things. This period is called the Restoration, after all, not only in the sense of restoring the king to the throne, but also in the sense of restoring stability to the land. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of this coin, Charles was setting up a casual band of his own cavaliers with whom he would regularly cavort and frolic and carry on. Mm -hmm. One of Charles' favorite ways to play with his new courtiers was to patronize the arts. Early in his reign, Charles lifted the ban on theater and gave licenses to several companies to reopen the stages of London. Now, while Charles did not exercise much authority over what type of theater was to be representative of the period, Moliere's influence quickly became apparent. Most of the prior ages in theater generally categorized plays into either comedies or tragedies. And while the restoration is not necessarily different, the tragedies of the restoration are almost non-existent in comparison to the comedies. Frankly, Charles wanted to enjoy his time out with his friends and didn't want to get too deep or contemplative. Therefore, the British Restoration is known for its comedies, more specifically its bawdy comedies, bawdy. which showed the aristocracy for what it was. A seedy group of pompous men and their mistresses all showing how witty and overtly sexual they were. <laughs> Basically just telling it like it was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there was no shame. No shame. None. The plots of these plays often involve the wealthy in the midst of their sexual conquests and good-natured trials of wit with each other, and the lower classes trying to be like the upper classes. Yes. And for those of you watching that took any type of studio acting classes, this is called the comedy of manners era. Ooh, yes. Now, before I get too deep into that, I'll preface this next session with one of the great things that did come out of Restoration Theater. Women! Women yes. were allowed to perform on stage. Finally. Yes. This had not been the yes. practice through like virtually all of Western theater and women's parts were often played by boys or effeminate men in women's costumes. Ergo, drag. Drag. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> However, according to Charles, he required that women's roles be played by, quote, their natural performers end quote, and who better to understand women than women? Duh. This actually led to a fairly significant feminist victory in the world of theater. Not only were women allowed on stage, but written works by women were allowed on stage. Aphra Bean was known for her comedies of intrigue with complicated plots and daring yep. exploits of romance. Her best known play was The Rover, this play uh, centers around two Spanish sisters living in their father's home in the Italian city of Naples during the annual festival of Carnival. One of the sisters, Florinda, is to be married to an old nobleman who is a friend of her father's, but she is in love with a handsome British military officer named Belleville. Belleville. <laughs> her sister, Helena, is to be sent to a convent once Carnival festivities are over. Now, while they are in disguise as gypsies at a carnival event, the two sisters see the objects of their respective affections. Florinda is barely able to express her affections to her love before the festival attendants around her identify her and thus her secret love. Gasp! 
Helena, meanwhile, has spied Wilmore, Wilmore. the rover, <laughs> and she tells his fortune while pretending to be a gypsy and falls madly in love with him. Now, without spoiling too much more of the plot, a famous courtesan, high-class whore, Angelica, yep. uh, she enters the picture. Wilmore and Angelica flirt like crazy. They go off to commit bedroom antics uh, free of charge as Angelica has now fallen head over heels for Wilmore. Later, yes. Wilmore uh, boasts to his friends of his sexual ex exploits with Angelica, all the while unaware that Florinda and Helena have been eavesdropping on the whole conversation. Later, there's more mask play and women dressing up as men to interrupt amorous endeavors. And eventually, it all ends pretty happily. Yes, <laughs> eventually. So this is just an example of like what these kind of plots did. They were very complex, very witty, used beautiful language. All was about men trying to put their thing in some other girl and bragging to their friends about it. And the women, well, at this time, the, it was actually seemed a, a little out of place for a woman to approach a man uh, and say, I like you. Yeah, and these were before the days of toxic masculinity were even were before that was even a definition. Right. So men at that time, they were all different kinds of men. There were strapping men, there were hunters, there were fops that were like fezzy wigs and had rosy cheeks, and women went bonkers for them, and it was considered just totally fine. Like, yep. it's fine. Just do it. It was just oh. expression. Yep. I mean, women just basically had to stand there and wait for a guy to come up and go, well. Yes. <laughs> they had to literally like place themselves in the candelabra light just so and wait. <laughs> With a little fan. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm about to pass out. How are you, Margaret? <laughs> like I was saying, this was the type of plot that often found its way to the restoration stage. Quote, the best known fact about the restoration drama is that it is immoral. The dramatist did not criticize the accepted morality about gambling, drink, love, and pleasure generally, or try to work out their own view of the character and conduct. What they did was, according to their respective inclinations, to mock at all restraints. Some were gross, others delicately improper. The dramatists did not merely say anything they liked. They also intended to glory in it and to shock those who did not like it. They wanted people, it was like the Inquirer. They wanted people to leave the theater and talk about it <laughs> because it was relatable and people hadn't well, seen yeah. it on stage in so long. They, they, it was so boisterous and so large mm -hmm. that people related to it because it was, it was secretly what everyone was going through anyway. And right. Like, and what's kind of fun about that is it also just feels like this huge, collective, long-winded sigh of relief. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's like, ooh, I can relax. I can relax and laugh at dick jokes again. Yay! Yes! Thank you, dick jokes. <laughs> yep. Now, it should also be noted that the plays of A for B more often involved eavesdropping, espionage, and women ultimately being somewhat more clever than men. And perhaps this was because Bean was employed by Charles II for a time as a spy. But when he refused to pay her expenses for her work, she had to turn to playwriting in order to survive. No. <laughs> Good segue back to Charles. That guy. <laughs> right? Oh, God, this guy. Like, I just would have loved to have been around him and been like, look, I don't want to be your friend, but man, you're interesting. <laughs> right? The shit you do, dude. Wow. Charles thoroughly relished this new culture he created. 
Not only because it put him consistently in lavish settings, but because the approved art form celebrated the type of behavior that he was most often associated with, elitism and debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a picture of what it would be like to sit in the audience for a restoration comedy. Theater was now specifically moved inside, much like that of the French theater Charles had come to understand. But the concept of dimming the lights for a performance didn't really become a thing until the latter part of the 19th century. Plus, since standard okay. electrical systems had not been invented, the entire building was lit by candlelight. Mm -hmm. Everybody could see everything. Therefore, everyone could be seen, and this could not be more appealing to the theater patrons. Woo! That's <laughs> a different story, right? Like, yep. Uh, I want it. The theater patrons were a lot like Charles. They were wealthy and dressed in the finest liniments. So being visible at all times was precisely what they wanted. <laughs> to be seen with other fine people in their yes. fine clothes attending a cultural event. Ultimate vanity. I'm rich and at a play. Ha! In the lights. <laughs> I think this was also the time when they started to like have theater seats on stage. So got it. buy those seats and sit up there. <laughs> I'm in the play. <laughs> Now, actors and playwrights and sometimes company managers soon began to understand where certain sections of the audience would sit and would pander to them through writing and performance. The patrons ate it up with a spoon and responded with body calls back to the stage if they could keep from loudly talking amongst each other while the performance was going on. I it must have been just a riot. Like The way I'll describe this... Um, Patton Oswalt had a bit in one of his comedy acts where he was talking about playing at a uh, casino in Washington state. He drives up and he gets a, a hotel room that he says is like bigger than any house he's ever had. <laughs> they call him down for a VIP event, like three hours before the comedy event. It's a one night event. He goes into the VIP room and he's like, and there were 45 of the drunkest people I have ever ever been around and as soon as i came in the room they all recognized me and shouted at something at me that they'd seen me in oh my god like so, bombarded just bombarded and they were absolutely jolly so he did the vip event he goes to do the show and ladies and gentlemen Patton oswald but before they announced him coming on between him and the opener some voice over overhead said and for the next 10 minutes Two dollar shots. Oh god! <laughs> so these people who had been drinking that whole time, like, went to the bar and got like arm loads, like they're just laying it down. <laughs> <laughs> and so he gets out there, and this this is his description of what happened. I had my career screamed at me. I agreed with it. I walk off stage to a standing ovation. I didn't tell a <laughs> single joke. And I've never made an audience happier. Can you imagine the shock of that night to him? He was probably just like, I can't fucking believe what just happened. <laughs> and that's that's exactly what was happening with every restoration theater. I mean, they'd have their little flask and pop in and then we're going out to dinner afterwards. They're in the middle of a play. I know. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Bring them some to the stage. It's four acts. <laughs> <laughs> now, much like that audience, they soon began to see familiar faces on the stage, 
and celebrity actors were born. Restoration audiences fully flaunted their thinly veiled improprieties in public at the theater. Most often, nobles were seen with their most recent mistresses or whichever they cared to bring along. And Charles was no different. I should mention that Charles did actually marry, and mainly for political gain, as we discussed his father did. He married a princess from Portugal, Catherine of Braganza, which earned him a military alliance with nearby Portugal and a host of lands and titles that served as a dowry. However, he sired no children with Catherine. There were attempts, but each attempt ended in a miscarriage, so she couldn't have babies. While Catherine loved her husband, she couldn't really stop the will of the king. Charles took great advantage in this freedom. He even appointed one of his favorite mistresses, Barbara Palmer, as a lady of the bedchamber for his queen. <laughs> this is the lady I'm banging. Anyway, she's going to be dressing you. Have fun. <laughs> and Catherine did her best to resist, stating that she would take her entire company and leave for Portugal. Charles then proceeded to fire Catherine's entire company. So she put up with the arrangement, but was markedly absent from the king in public. Mm -hmm. Barbara eventually bore Charles five children. Now that is an arrangement. And not only did I get you employment, but you live at the palace. Hooray! <laughs> Another mistress that Charles had was Nell Gwynne. Often being noted for her wit, her bright spirit, but of course her excellent looks. Nell caught the eye of quite a few during the age and was frequently referred to simply by her first name, which is appropriate, as she had something of a persona, the likes of single-name celebrities like Madonna or Cher. Mm -hmm. Now, Nell was an actress on the stage, and while she would often play the female part in a young pair of lovers, her primary claim to fame was in breeches roles. In this context, a breeches role is one in which a female character dresses as a man for her own devices. And it became yes. Nell's specialty. Now, Nell met the king while attending the same play. They sat in boxes right next to each other. And throughout the performance, the flirtation between the two became quite obvious. Afterwards, Nell invited the king to dinner, which he accepted. At the end of the dinner, the king and his manservant realized that neither of them had any money. And Nell had to foot oh. the bill. <laughs> of course she did. Good old Nell. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lovely time. I suppose I should get back to the palace. Oh, I don't... Mm, didn't bring my coin purse. Mm. I've forgotten my coin purse. No. Mm. Toodle you. I'll send for you later. <laughs> no. Didn't seem to dissuade her much from the king's charms. The affair became quite well known soon after. She eventually bore two of Charles' many illegitimate children, and he paid her to, and he paid for her to live in a townhouse in London, where she lived for the rest of her life. Even after Charles had moved on from Nell to new lusty pursuits, he kept a painting of Nell behind a secret sliding panel in his palace. The painting featured Nell as the goddess Venus with their child Charles Beauclerk attending to her as Cupid. Both of the figures wow. were completely nude in a totally like peekaboo panel. Absolutely. Like he just turns around, <sighs> slide. He'd like lock the door, click. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my painting. It's my painting. Charles died in 1685. His legacy is dubious at best. Quote He was the playboy monarch, naughty but nice. The hero of all who prized urbanity, tolerance, good humor, and the pursuit of pleasure above the more earnest, sober, and material virtues. And mm. 
While a fairly sizable faction of his subjects weren't all that keen on taxes being raised, only to see that Charles would use state funds to pay for his many extramarital affairs, he still remained popular. Charles was quite public for a king, and frankly, enjoyed the same delights as virtually everyone on the social class spectrum. In fact, there are a lot of stories where after he'd get done with the wealthy people, he'd be like, let's just go to a pub. <laughs> okay, almost done here. This is great. Charles had at least seven confirmed and public mistresses, all of whom bore him children, and acknowledged no more than 12 illegitimate children. This does not take into account all of the rumored mistresses he had, which were many, and thus many more unacknowledged children. He was a hooker. He got around. <laughs> he got around. And he wasn't exactly like a looker. If you've seen pictures of him, he had oh, a gigantic yeah. schnoz. Like... Big old nose and a, a weird little creepy mustache. And but... Yeah, like the pencil mustache. He <laughs> was like Captain Hook. He's like his <laughs> ugly, creepy cousin. Now, much to the chagrin of his subjects, many of the illegitimate children were granted titles and lands. In fact, several descendants of Charles II's illegitimate children are still members of royalty today, including Prince William of Cambridge, whose mother, Princess mm -hmm. Diana, descended from two of Charles' illegitimate sons. How crazy is that? <laughs> Come back around, why don't you? <laughs> In theater, the restoration period is generally considered to have ended in 1700. Although many of the playwriting and acting characteristics carried on long after, developing into new types of comedy, all still relatively about the wealthy and their many sexual endeavors. And that is the story for today. And we are happy with it. It was fantastic. <laughs> the story of Charles and the Puritans. Oh my God. I just think about that how frequently throughout history have we seen like periods of such staunch oppression be met directly with exactly what they tried to stop? Exactly. Well, and it's funny because you can see it even now, like the hypocrisy of people who write their own history. They, the perfect example is these people that were trying to put a stopper on theater, but in their giant theatrics to stop theater, they told their own story that you and I just reenacted. Like, it's hilarious. Like, oh, yeah. Afer Bean was even known to write Puritans into her plays, and they were often like either villains or people that could be made fun of. It didn't give them any respect. You know, when I teach this stuff, I often refer to it as a pendulum. I mean, an era will go in one direction for so long, and then it will reach its maximum point and start going back the other way. And sometimes that swing is very fast, and sometimes it takes a while. This one, I mean, it went from one extreme to the other, like now. 11 years of, well, we are the Puritans and don't have fun. Are you wearing makeup? Off with your head. It's for your own good. To, well, what are you wearing? Can it lay on my floor? Right. <laughs> I can't have anything that takes longer than 45 minutes to take off. <laughs> no laces. <laughs> Full 180. It's crazy. You go from, like you said, from wearing nothing, zero, total minimalism, people looking like Fiddler on the Roof for like years and years. Oh, like, the roundheads. Well, what is she wearing? <laughs> Pay attention to the show. Nonsense. Look at that petticoat. <laughs> so, Damn. yeah, there we go. This uh, that episode of Euripides Humanities, we learned that you stifle people long enough, they're going to explode. The end. And they did. <laughs>
<laughs> Hope to see you then. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Hey friends, this is your host, Aaron Odom, coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up. Or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. Them, and we try to get a new episode out every two weeks, so hope to see you again in a fortnight. Good.